For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Whenever you're ready, Douglas. Sure. Uh, well, good evening again. Um, so, since I am a lay interested teacher here, uh, Tygen has asked me to speak. Um, those of you who know me are aware of how much I really enjoy public speaking <laughs> and uh, the desire, the fear that at any moment someone's going to stand up and point out how my hat head looks really ridiculous or that my talk is stupid, I'm a fraud, and the talk is too long. Um, that actually has something to do with the talk tonight, so tangentially. Um, I wanted to talk tonight about uh, our practice and how it relates to the teachings of form and emptiness that we chanted about in the Heart Sutra. The, the beginning is form does not differ from emptiness, emptiness does not differ from form, form itself is emptiness, emptiness itself form. And in order to do that, as a jumping off point, I thought I would talk about the um, a koan about how Ibar Wu met the Bodhidharma. This is the first koan in the Blue Cliff Record. It's the second koan in the Book of Serenity. So clearly, <coughs> our ancestors thought it was a pretty significant story. It's pretty short. It just says that Emperor Wu of Dian asked great teacher Bodhidharma, what is the highest meaning of the holy truths? Bodhidharma said, emptiness, nothing holy. And the emperor said, who is this standing in front of me? And Bodhidharma said, don't know, or not knowing. The emperor did not understand. And Bodhidharma left to go north to Wei, and he sat at Shaolin for nine years uh, facing the wall in Zazen. And uh, the rest is history. Before this exchange uh, with Bodhidharma was talking to Emperor Wu, and Emperor Wu said, well, I have built many stupas, I have built many monasteries. I have ordained many monks. What merit comes from that? And Bodhidharma said, no merit. So I think those are related, but uh, we'll go into that later. So I think most of you know that Bodhidharma is a semi-mythological, perhaps legendary, first Chinese ancestor of Zen. And practically nothing is known about him. And in fact, there were quite a few academic historians of Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism who for quite a while thought that Bodhidharma didn't exist at all. He was just a legend. And in the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, Tagen, what would that be? There have been discoveries of um, more or less contemporary uh, records, um, memorial 
uh, structures that mention him. So it's clear that he existed, but beyond that, we don't know much. They, there are two different traditions in, in the Chinese Zen literature. One is that he came from southern India, and the other one that he came from Persian Central Asia. And because of that, he's usually portrayed as having a bushy red beard and blue eyes. So he's often called, you know, the red-bearded barbarian, that sort of thing. Um, we know a bit more about Emperor Wu of Lian because Lian was uh, a region in southeast China. It was stable, it was wealthy, it was powerful. And Emperor Wu was an interesting man. He was a devout Confucian. There's such a thing as a devout Confucian. But at any rate, he observed the rites, and he um, expanded the reach of the um, imperial service, civil service exams, in which people would be uh, tested on their knowledge of the Confucian classics and, and poetry, literature generally, um, and were required to write essays, that sort of thing, appreciative essays, in order to obtain positions in the imperial bureaucracy. And Emperor Wu extended this to aristocratic families in Yan, requiring that they have their sons uh, take the exam. Beyond that, Emperor Wu was a committed Buddhist. As he said, he had built many stupas and many monasteries, ordained many monks. And um, he had studied the texts uh, diligently, and he was known to wear monk's robes and lecture about the sutras and, and treatises. And um, it's noted in, in uh, the Quran literature, the commentaries, that at one point when he was speaking about the light-emitting wisdom scripture, um, flowers, miraculous flowers, fell on him from the sky and the ground turned gold. So um, in this exchange, um, you know, frequently the koan literature has a, what seems like a fairly ignorant or even stupid student asking a question to an enlightened Zen master who clarifies everything for him and brings it to enlightenment. And that's not what's happening here. I don't think, I mean, there are plenty of modern people who have commented on the koan and they seem to think that Emperor Wu is essentially clueless. And I don't think that's what's true at all. And actually, the commentators in the Blue Cliff Record and the Book of Serenity don't think so either. They talk about him as a, a sincere, dedicated practitioner who asks in these koans, he has questions that uh, are important to clarify, even if he really doesn't get to the heart of the matter. So I think that what's really going, my way of approaching this koan is to see it as Emperor Wu having heard about this barbarian who's come to China to teach the Dharma, and he's got this unusual message that he, you know, that he's bringing a transmission outside of the scriptures, not dependent on words and letters, directly pointing to the mind, see into your nature, and attain Buddhahood, attaining Buddhahood in this life. Um, that was not part of the teaching that um, Ibrahim was probably familiar with. I mean, building stupas, building monasteries, um, studying the scriptures are all things that would uh, generate good karma, lead 
to uh, an excellent new birth. And, and certainly studying the scriptures is important and extremely helpful to us. But, um, but what Bodhidharma was teaching was something very different. And I think that what's going on here is that Emperor Wu is really vetting this foreign teacher with a strange new method, this guy who isn't lecturing on, on the sutras, who has this message about attaining Buddhahood in this life and who emphasizes meditation. He wants to know what's going on because at that time, the uh, imperial governments regulated monastics very heavily and uh, they supported certain monasteries very much, but you, they licensed the ordination platforms. So only licensed ordination platforms could ordain monks. And monks received the license, a, a formal identity card, when they ordained to show that they were legitimate. There were really two ways to know if someone was legitimately a monk or if he was just some scoundrel who was hiding out hoping for free rice and a place to sleep. And one was that he had his ID card, and the other was when Chinese monks were ordained at that time, they would have a series of holes burned onto the tops of their heads that would have little stick. Six, six sticks of incense stuck to the tops of their heads and lit and they burned down and when they burned down they left scars so it's kind of like so if somebody <clears throat> somebody claimed to be a monk and had hair they just shaved his head and saw if he had scars and at any rate I think that's what's going on he, he wants to make sure the Bodhidharma is legitimate before he authorizes it to teach in Yang and uh, and maybe if he is, uh, he can become the head teacher of these monasteries that the temple was built. So, you know, he's asked, what is the most profound teaching in Buddhism? And Bodhidharma says, emptiness, nothing holy. And I don't think that would have, you know, that wouldn't have been objectionable. Emperor Wu was living at a time where he would have read. And, uh, studied and understood the Krishna Paramita Sutras and therefore understood emptiness teaching very well. And it's very likely that he had studied Nagarjuna and Majamaka thought too early for Yogacara, but still uh, he would have had a pretty good understanding uh, of what was going on. The confusion is when he says, okay, he's going to test him further. And you think everything here is. Everything is emptiness. I guess this universe is just a vast expanse of emptiness. Well, what is this human form standing here talking to me? And I think you know, we start to elicit some discussion of the relationship between form and emptiness and the two truth, the conventional truth and the ultimate truth and emptiness, that sort of thing. And Bodhidharma doesn't play that game. He just says, you know, don't know, not knowing which are, in fact, the, the turning words, the key points of, um, of this koan. But it wasn't what Emperor Wu was expecting. He's, he's kind of taken back. And when Bodhidharma says that, he's not interested in staying in Yan. He knows he's not going to be supported in Yan. So he heads north, goes away, and spends nine years practicing and facing the wall at Shaolin. So, you know, so clearly 
you know, this, this, this story is about form and emptiness, and I guess we have to think about what are we talking about when we talk about form. When we talk about form, we're really talking about something that's called um, self-nature, which is the sense that we have, that we and all of the things in the universe are, are um, separate and independent and stable, fixed, enduring. They can interact with things, but, but really, essentially, they are themselves. So enduring in the sense that there was a baby Douglas, there was a little boy Douglas, there was an old man Douglas, but it's still Douglas in spite of all that change. And then obviously that I am separate I haven't been merged with anything else, and I'm independent in the sense that I am what I am, and I continue to be what I am without being dependent on anything in particular. Um, so when we talk about form morals, I'm talking about all of the, the skylights, right, in the same way that that the Heart Sutra goes through and says, you know, form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. The same is true for sensation, perception, formations of consciousness. So we can just say form. When we're talking about form. We're talking about all phenomena that make up the world. And that's what the five stems are. The physical forms and all of the mental things that make up our cognitive processes. And... Um, so the importance of this is that we come to feel that we ourselves have this self-nature and everything else has self-nature through this um, really complicated, interactive, psychological process that's based on, uh, in large part, unconscious processes. That when we have some contact with something outside of our Bodies, sensory contact, um, uh, we then have immediately a sort of vague sensation of whether this is pleasant or unpleasant, this is interesting, it's not interesting, and that develops into uh, a perception of it's that over there, that thing right there, that is causing that, and then uh, that input goes into our the are unconscious, and that's processed to come up with our consciousness. That a lot of what goes on in our mind, uh, in our perceptions, and so on, is um, is really it doesn't come into consciousness. It's unconscious. But a significant aspect of this is that when we perceive something interesting, or when we think of something interesting, we focus on it. It stands out. Um, we identify it as this. And um, we have uh, what's called the ego consciousness, or in the which it's called manas. It's, the, it's, it's part of our, our um, conceptual interpretation of the world. When we identify a thing, and that includes not just a physical thing, but a thought or an idea or a process, anything that can come to our attention and that we can focus on. As soon as we do that, 
through a consensual process, we I, we identify consensually and we create a split. We consensually say there's something there, and if it's perceived, there's a perceiver here. That perceiver is me. And the sensation that there's a perceiver here, me, and there's something out there, and it's fixed, it's concrete, it's lasting, it's durable, it's on its own, becomes more vivid and strongly and persistently felt the more um, we direct our attention to that thing. And that can be because we feel that it's an important idea, for example, or something really tastes good, or we are really afraid of something. Um, But this is something that we have projected upon the world. It's not that we perceive the thing. It's that we created a perception that there's a thing here that I'm looking at, or there's an idea that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about enlightenment. I really want to be enlightened. When we perceive things, we um, also develop attachment or aversion uh, to imagine deluded perception. And the interesting thing is that as we think about, you know, having created this sense that we're a person, then we have to, we spend a great deal of time um, protecting the security and seeking validation and seeking every kind of of, um, pleasure. Throw out other words (laughs) that you can think. All of the good things that we can seek in our life and in our world. That's what we're looking for, and we're looking for them in the world. So it's not that we're passively receiving information about the world. We are going out there seeking things that are going to um, make us more secure, make us happier, bring pleasure to us, and so on. So in effect, what we do is we build a wall um, that we're here, we're the perceiver, and out there, there are all those things that we're perceiving, and all these things that we are acting upon, and all of these things that we are thinking about. So, um, the result of that is, obviously, when we project these ideas that of, of, I'm here, you're out there, um, I'm looking for something along these ways, we're looking we're actively seeking specific things. We have, we have a type craving. Right? We see these things, we, we latch onto them, we identify them, we hold onto them, and we seek uh, something that we crave, that was something we want, or we try to push away something that we don't want. And immediately, just in that process, we're feeling um, attention. Um, Anxiety, fear, anger in response to something that's not the way we want it to be. Uh, We feel neediness and desire for something that we don't have, or we sort of wrap our arms around something that we have that we don't want to go away. All of that because we're trying to maintain this relationship or eliminate whatever relationship there is between me and this separate thing there. So that dichotomy, that dualism, leads to uh, itself to suffering. 
but it also um, gives rise to a really um, false way of engaging with the world, right? Because if the number one, if we prioritize everything on how it affects me, how it benefits me, or how it harms me, or how it could harm me, then we find ourselves at dealing with everything in that way. We uh, have no particular the 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 well-being of others, the suffering of others, is sort of a, at best, second-tier concern. That we don't have to act for the well-being of others. We don't, uh, we don't have to help to alleviate their suffering or to avoid the suffering in the first place. And we can take actions without much regard for how that's going to affect other people, other beings. So, um, it takes us down what is uh, delusion takes us down what can be an ethically challenged road so that's uh, that's my short talk about uh, why our, our engaging the world of the sense of being, having self-nature, dealing with things that have self-nature is a bad thing. So where does emptiness come in? Well, I first want to say that when we say form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness is not no other than form. I want to be clear that emptiness is not a thing. It's not an essence. It's not some pure being or substance that takes then becomes the forms that we engage with in our life, just pretty much redundant. Or, and it's not some pure substance, pure being, some sort of essence. It is always the same, but through some confusion, um, we perceive as separate things. Again, we're more like yoga, classical yoga. Emptiness just means that Whatever we experience, whatever we see, whatever we think about is empty of self-nature. It exists because of our conceptual engagement with this object of perception, this object of thought. And that's an error. That, that, that's a, that concept has no true referring. It's not that things don't exist. They do exist, but they don't exist the way we think they do in, the, in, in, in accordance with the framework that we project upon the world. So um, there's a lot of misunderstanding of Buddhism about, about, that, about essence, about there's some disparagement of the real world. That it's not, doesn't, things don't really exist. They do really exist. If you doubt that, go stand in front of a bus and see what happens. But the thing is that a bus doesn't exist the way we think of a bus. A bus is made up of all sorts of different things. Parts are replaced all the time, for example. It exists, but it is not. it does not have self-nature. It is not this um, separate, independent thing. It has come into existence because of a whole bunch of causes and conditions and parts 
that have been assembled together. It continues to exist on the basis of those causes and conditions, all of its maintenance, all the repairs and replacements. And it's not some unitary, unchanging thing. You know, it's a bunch of parts that are going to be changed out all the time. So a bus is also empty. And so the world, we can, the shorthand say that the world is, is emptiness. But it's not something that we pursue. It's, it's a way of telling you that the ordinary way we experience the world is just, it's a magic trick. And we need to find a different way to deal with it. Um, but why, why would we say that? And, and the answer is, you know, uh, I'll sort of go back over it, that the world is not a collection of, of independent, separate, unitary, stable, unchanging things. The world is a network of interdependent causes and conditions that are in constant change that exists only in relation to each other and that arise and continue to exist only because of other causes and conditions and that themselves are causes and conditions for the existence of other things. So that is the theory of interdependent origination or dependent co-arising, which is shorter and easier to say. It means the same thing. Everything is coming into being together based on this, this relational existence and the, and the mutual causation and conditioning that goes on all the time. So we think about, you know, there is an, there's an incredible amount of very profound Buddhist philosophy written about what emptiness, uh, how do we understand emptiness? How do we think about emptiness? So David, I will give a plug for David's Nidarjana group and, and Wade's Nidarjana group, um, which is a brain practice for sure. Um, ways to understand form and emptiness. Um, and Yogacara, and Wajen, and Tiantai, Thought, are all progressively more complicated ways of, of understanding emptiness. But essentially, they do all come down to this great network of interdependent causes and conditions, dynamic interdependent causes and conditions. So what do we do? We now know that our way of perceiving the world and thinking about the world is wrong. It's confused. So what can we do about it? And it's a good thing, like if we were to have studied the Prajnaparamita literature to read the Garjadai, to read the, you know, Vasubandhu and the Sadai and Naga and people like that and Yogachara and so on and so forth. But that will not, in itself, lead to liberation. If it did, then all of the professors of Buddhist studies around the world would be Buddhists, and they're not. So 
what do we do if it's not a matter of just convincing ourselves that we're wrong? And here's why we're wrong. The answer is that we have to have a different relationship to our thinking mind. And the point is, the point of this is that um, sort of there are two streams of thought. One is that we're very, very confused and over zillions and trillions of lifetimes, we perfect our understanding more and more and more until we're not fooled by the magic show anymore, and then we can become Buddhas. The other strain of thought, which is the strain of thought that is certainly dominant in East Asia, and certainly is the case for Zen, is that we are inherently awake. We are not inherently confused, caught up in this confusing cloud of, of um, conceptual understanding and perceptions of the world which are dependent upon conceptual understanding and then our, our conscious thought of who we are and what we need and what we don't need all shaping those things. What we do is then we step outside of that whole world of thinking and feeling and desire and emotion we can't stop thinking and feeling and having emotions. It is not possible to do that. So I'll just say that you cannot do that. But you would not want to. Because if you stopped thinking, you would die of hunger. And it's an undesirable thing to do. So what we can do is step back, let our mind continue to operate without shaping our consciousness. Um, as Dugan would say, when you take the backward step that shines the light within, and doing that it is in itself enlightenment. It is the practice realization of perfect enlightenment. In doing that, we wake up from delusion and we live authentically. He also makes it clear even at the beginning, so I'm quoting Fukan Zazengi, but at the beginning of Fukan Zazengi, he talks about, if you will just let go of your, and it's translated a bunch of different ways, but analysis and measuring and thinking and explanations, then the face before your parents were born immediately appears. So, this world appears, what, what do we have when that happens? When we stop being caught up in the world of thinking, where we're sitting on our cushions, we get confused, we get confused, we're whirling, 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 we're lost, we're distracted, and suddenly we're back. There's a gap in the thinking, we're there. That is what I'm talking about. That fresh world, that open world that we open to is is the mind, it is consciousness before we get caught up in that deluded thinking and feeling and emotion. That our life, when we have stepped out of that sense of, of craving, that perception of self-nature, being a fixed self in opposition to the world and to all of the specific things in there, 
that is um, that is why the the different Zen teachers will say, just this is it, or thusness, or suchness, or things that is, as it is, or Buddha nature, or Genjo Kwan, the universe come making itself manifest to us without our trying to contain it in our thoughts and control it. So, um, congratulations on your doing 30 minutes of zazen and having waked up and, be, and tasted enlightenment who knows how many times during that half hour. But that is so practice, and that is what we keep doing on the cushion. Off the cushion, things are more challenging, right? Um, because we have to think in order to act off the cushion. But the point is to learn to let go and to open up. And that's something we carry with us off the cushion. The, 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 problem, the problem arises for us off the cushion when we get caught up in the thing, when we immerse ourselves in the thinking, and we get fixated on things. We're used to recognizing that and opening up to whatever is going on right now, so that we participate, just as we do on our cushion, wholeheartedly in the activity we're engaged in right there. If we're not caught up in our thinking and feeling and emotions and judgments and so on, we are, they're still going on, but we are wholeheartedly engaged in whatever discussion or chopping vegetables or washing dishes or vacuuming or whatever we do. Um, and we are engaged in, in uh, authentic, <coughs> non-deluded activity. So that both on the cushion and off the cushion, we are practicing a wholehearted way. So, 34, that's enough. Um, please, uh, if you have any comments, uh, any questions, uh, feel free to ask me. Thank you. Yes. Um, thank you for sharing. It sounded like a recap of, of the struggle that um, one goes through, right? And trying to, like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Should I keep doing it? How do I do it? Is it too much? Is it too little? And just to clarify it with myself, I think I need like to to try to see if I understood some of your points. Um, search for anything can be a manifestation of attachment, and our need to do that. So even the spiritual search can become itself a manifestation of that mm -hmm. if we focus too much into it. It's just another like solidifying of a form. And so the most effective search is to sidestep and not do a search and and, and not search. 
yeah. a little bit. So it, it, it reminded me of the delusions aren't exhaustible. We ought to get through them because it sounds like the point is just get through them, which is easy to say, but it, it's a very, very hard <laughs> thing to address. But does that, is that, is that a line? Yeah, uh, you know, um, if in re when you read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, it's amazing how many times Suzuki Roshi refers to not having the gaining idea, including not having some sort of spiritual objective. Um, because when you set that up and make an effort to shape your zazen and to obtain some goal, yes, you've created this projection, this idea that you're trying to to reach, and um, you're caught up in thinking again. The whole point is to sidestep the thinking because the thinking is inherently going to, if you stick with the thing, um, if if you really are devoting attention to whatever it is you're thinking about or whatever you're perceiving, then you are creating, you're thinking again, you're back in the process and you've created this split between yourself and this object of your attention, object of thought or object of perception. So, yeah, so our own, the only thing we need to do is to just sit and let whatever happens happen. And let our minds go and we will get caught up. We will get caught up, snagged by a thought, something, and we'll be gone for a while, but we will come back. And when we come back, the point is just to check your posture and remain there um, again, as you were before. Um, Thank you very much for that talk, Douglas. Um, so the encounter between Bodhidharma and Emperor Wu takes on new drama in your in your retelling of it. Um, and it reminds me of the story of Diogenes, the, the cynic who was visited by the, the great ruler of his time, Alexander the Great. And Diogenes was lying in the sand and Alexander said, I'm Alexander the Great, I'll give you anything you want. Is there anything you want? And Diogenes said, well, I'm trying to sunbathe. You could step aside and get out of my sun. <laughs> As if to say, the great emperor has nothing that, that I want. So I'm wondering if you think that, that Bodhidharma is doing something like that. In other words, this is his opportunity to get imperial endorsement by, by giving the sort of version of Buddhism that he was, that, that Emperor Wu was, ex, was expecting to hear. A discursive answer to the question, if the answer is emptiness, then, then what is this before me? To which, as you said, he could have given a kind of, you know, long philosophical commentary answer. But instead, and you call that the, the turning word, and I'm still, I'm still curious about this phrase, which is still new to me So from, from Alan's talk. So I'm wondering if you see something something like that, like like Bodhidharma, you know, insisting on not giving the emperor what he wanted. Um, I think there's some similarity, um, but I think this was Bodhidharma, you know, giving a teaching to Emperor Wu, 
um, don't know, not knowing. It can be true in either way. It can be, and it could be, I don't know, or it could be, don't know. No knowing, no labeling, no conceptual attempt to understand, to, to capture what's going on here. Nothing that, no concepts you're going to have will capture reality in its interdependent, intercausal, constantly changing way. And any attempt to do so creates that illusion and that duality again that leads to suffering. You know, I mean, I think the problem with that, you know, this this is a literary document. This is not a historical record, right? So, in real life, that would not be a very helpful kind of lesson or um, without any prior preparation for you to expect something. It would be pretty opaque. But I think it's something we can understand. That we have to let go of the thoughts, let go of the ideas, let go of the not knowing, not knowing, not knowing, not it's this is it, not this is it. We'll get so. I might have heard this story before, and I've I've often felt sad and about the Bodhidharma's response. I think he could have reached his hand out. To Emperor Wu, he could have kissed him, said, This is who's in front of me. So I feel like, you know, he could have said, What's the most important thing? Kindness, compassion. You know, and it seems like Emperor also, as I recall, like he kind of somebody he said to somebody, What just happened? He said, Oh, that's like a great teacher. And Wu went after him. But but there's something about this that um, you know, like there's an abandoning and almost a shaming of someone. And I wonder about how we will tell these stories in our time and place. So and I, I really appreciate it, and I think it's beautiful to unpack it. It's so rich. There's so many associations. But I, I still kind of have a little softness for Emperor Wu and for Buddy Dharma. I had a reaction as I was first starting to think about it, a sort of similar reaction. Emperor Wu was quite a philosophical guy. But an answer could have been, you know, uh, refrain from harm, do what is good, purify the mind, work for the benefit and well-being of all beings. That that was my reaction too. Um, Or you've done so much for the Dharma. Thank you very much. Yeah. Or an explanation of it. Leading him up to don't know something I didn't know. Or or not even leading, just being really connected to him. Yeah. You know, and I I feel like sometimes there's a violence in these koans, and I understand the time and place and cultural reference, but I also wonder what our stories will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. um, Like, what's your story? Desperately understand. <laughs> Desperation to understand. Like you shared with us at the beginning, you said 
that makes me a little nervous to speak here. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, we all get a little nervous together. And I thought, that's Douglas's teaching, just being with us, even if. And I think these are our stories. I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to press you too much, but I, I really no. appreciate your. No, I think, you know, I think there's a value in the story that if it were a real, if it were a historical event, like you, I would have thought, it's not, you know, not really an appropriate, skillful, compassionate response. Mm -hmm. And how about this, Bodhidharma? You're talking to the emperor who is building all these monasteries. What if you had taken this teaching moment to really explain to him it would have been an opportunity to teach and to share the teaching more widely with him young. And he didn't, but, but again, it's, you know, it's a limited literary document. It's not a historical record. But it's our heritage. It's our heritage, yeah. Kind of our Ur Zen teacher. Yeah. Um, so, um, the turning word, David, you know, is... Hosanna was saying yesterday, you know, it's the, the words that, that bring a change, a rotation to change your perspective on things. And the turning words of a story like this are, you know, um, in Kohan practice, they'd be called, you know, the keywords, the, the wado. They're the ones that you would hold in your mind. Times when you're working on the colon. So someone might work on the colon and just keep sitting there repeating, don't know, don't know, don't know. Something like that, with the hope that at some moment that would strike a chord, would open up a new perspective. Hmm. A perspective that was there, but so I think we're about at time, but I see that Douglas, or I'm sorry, Tygen has his hand up. Yes. I, yeah, yeah uh, Douglas, um, I don't mean to be unkind, but how many objects are there in that room with you? Um, there are at least 10,000 objects. <laughs> there are no objects in this room. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay. So, so I think it's probably time for the vows and announcements. The theme song. <laughs> <laughs> the theme song. <laughs>